0: Good morning. So I do not have a children's message this morning. Um, I had a couple of ideas, they didn't quite come together. Uh, The internet is actually down, both here and at my house. Uh, But I had this idea, I saw a video on my Instagram feed and it is a mother trying to teach her toddler stranger danger. So, your Korean lesson for today is, and if you speak Korean, then I apologize. The word for no is andayo. So, you can all say andayo. So, the mom would ask the child, she would say, What do you do if a stranger asks you if you want some ice cream? And the girl would say yes. And she'd say no. No, you say andayo. And she'd say, anda-yo. And she'd say, Okay, so try again. Do you want some? Do you, do you want some cookies? And she said, "Good." And she said, "No, no." And she said, "Ande yo." <laughs> and Try it again. Ande yo. And so she went through. She had three or four questions. But she went through all of them, and finally, at the end, she, you know, she started to say the right answer. And and the last question was, "Do you want to go swimming?" And she said, "Oh yes." <laughs> she said, "No." <laughs> Ande yo. It was very cute. The whole thing's in Korean, though, so I don't know how that would have gone, because the kids probably can't read the subtitles, so we would have watched the video, and then I would have had to describe it, but that was the idea. So uh, today is about life-changing invitations, and we've got some counterexamples, so you don't want a stranger inviting your children uh, to someplace else. We don't want our kids to be in danger, but... You know, when John the Baptist and Jesus and the disciples are offering us invitations, those are the ones that we want to accept. So, uh, listen today for three different invitations. And uh, if you need some artistic direction, because I don't have a coloring sheet, uh, you can make an invitation to someone. So, whoever you want to invite, and it can be to whatever event you want to invite, uh, can be one of the invitations of uh, uh, John the Baptist or Jesus, if you like. Um, please stand with me, and we'll read the gospel message. Uh, from Mark 1, 14 through 20. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me," Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once, they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James and the son of the, uh, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Uh, this is our gospel for today. You may be seated. So Mark is always brief, something he's kind of known for. Everything happens immediately or without delay. Here he summarizes the ministry of John the Baptist, actually a very specific event, John's imprisonment. He summarizes Jesus' early ministry and the calling of the disciples into just six verses before moving on to stories of miracles in the rest of chapter 1. By the end of chapter 1, Jesus is so well-known that he can no longer enter towns. He has to stay on the outskirts where people seek him out. So, one chapter, Mark takes us from John the Baptist to Jesus can't even walk into town anymore. What I see in these quick six verses is the progression of the message of the gospel. From John the forerunner to Jesus himself and on to the disciples who would carry the good news after Jesus' death. Each verse presents us with an invitation. We're going to look at these three ministries through the tiny glimpse that Mark gives us us, and pull in some supporting verses from the other Gospels to consider how these life-changing invitations apply to us. Two weeks ago, I went to Washington, D.C. for work. There was a convenient mid-afternoon flight. I wouldn't have to get up early. I would arrive at Reagan Airport late in the evening, but there would be enough time to settle in and get a good night's rest. I did not take that flight. My boss wanted to have supper together. The only other flight available departed at 7 a.m., so I got up at 4.30. I caught an Uber at 5 to be at the airport a dutiful hour and a half early. On the plane, I had just tucked in my laptop under the seat in front of me when a woman asked me if I was in row 19. I said, no, this is row 18. The man next to me disagreed saying I was, in fact, sitting in row 19. So I looked at the seat in front of me, thinking, well, I sat in the wrong row, and the seat was occupied. So I was confused. The woman spoke calmly and waited patiently, eventually reading my seat number over my shoulder and pointing me to the seat by the window on the other side of the plane in the row in front of me, which was actually empty. The lack of sleep from a late night of packing and an early morning was too much. Even staring at the boarding pass, I couldn't figure out where I was supposed to be sitting. I was grateful for her not making a scene and her patience with me in my confusion. In modern buzzwords, what this woman displayed could be called emotional intelligence. One definition of emotional intelligence I found described it as recognizing, understanding, and controlling your own emotional response. She could have gotten angry. She could have been demanding, but she wasn't and recognizing, understanding, and influencing the emotions of others. By staying calm, she kept me calm, and I was able to move to my correct seat. Influence sounds a little bit sinister. A definition I find a little more palatable is that emotional intelligence combines humility and empathy. That's what the woman on the airplane showed me. She knew, I was in the, she knew that she was in the right. She intentionally approached me in a way that didn't embarrass me. John the Baptist has no need for emotional intelligence. John has a job to do. He is unmeasured and uncompromising in his message. He is the fulfillment of Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. What does this mean? Imagine a small town being visited by an important dignitary, perhaps an emperor. Given enough advance notice, they might go out and fix the roads or build a new bridge. They're going to clean the public spaces and be ready for that person's arrival. Think of the preparations that go into hosting the Olympics. New event venues are constructed, roads are fixed, spaces are created to make the city presentable for a national audience. On a smaller scale, what do you do when a guest comes to visit? You make sure the snow is cleared and the entryway is picked up we make it as easy as possible for an honored guest to arrive at their destination. In this case, it's the king of the world who is visiting, or who's coming. Not visiting, who's coming. Although Jesus came to earth as a man, Jerusalem wasn't his destination. He didn't come to be king of the earth. He came to be king of our hearts. Luke 17, 20 says, The coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. People will not say, here it is, or there it is. Because the kingdom of God is within you, or among you. So how do we prepare? John has the answer. Pastor Danny shared it with us two weeks ago. The way to make a straight path to your heart is through repentance. You get the clutter out of the way, Certainly, Jesus meets us wherever we are and whatever our state. But given the opportunity, it's nice to clean up. John has a job to do. He calls it like he sees it. In Matthew, he calls the Pharisees snakes. In Luke, he indicts the whole crowd. Different people groups ask him for advice, and he gives it to them straight. Don't cheat. Don't extort others. He calls out Herod for immorality and adultery within his own family. Herod, and especially his new wife Herodias, don't like it. How did Herod hear about this? Was this like a hot microphone situation? Was he having a side conversation and didn't realize he was saying it out loud? I don't think so. It's a voice crying in the wilderness. I'm guessing he was preaching against Herod every day. Ultimately, this is what gets John killed. But John has a job to do. Repent, he cries. John the Baptist did not account for the emotions of others, but he was humble beyond measure in one regard. As the crowds were coming to him, his foremost message was that Jesus was coming. And when Jesus arrived, John announced him to everyone and sent his own disciples to follow Jesus. John wasn't all doom and gloom either. We're told he preached the good news with many exhortations, that is, with encouragement and at great length. The time of the Lord has come. John's life-changing invitation is to repent. Repentance, meaning to turn away from sin, can change your whole life. Stopping a destructive behavior by turning away from it, by confessing it as was done uh, as people were being baptized in the Jordan, brings freedom and peace and the lifting of a burden. After Jesus is baptized by John, Jesus is led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. John keeps sharing his hard message, And eventually, Herod has John thrown in prison. This is where our scripture passage today begins. Mark skips over Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Jesus hears that John has been put in prison and begins his ministry. In Matthew, it says Jesus heard that John had been put in prison and withdrew to Galilee. In Luke, it says that Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Whether due to the residual danger of John's arrest or the Spirit's guidance, or apparently because of both, Jesus starts visiting towns and preaching the good news in his own neighborhood, in and around Galilee and Nazareth. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. What does this mean? The time is the time of the fulfillment of the prophecies of the Old Testament. The time that the Old Testament looked forward to, Elijah had returned, although John the Baptist did not recognize himself as him. The Messiah had come, and Jesus proclaims John later, after his death, to have been the return of Elijah. God spoke to Abraham in Genesis 28:14, All people on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. Isaiah spoke to King Ahaz. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, fulfilled at the birth of Jesus again. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from, for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Micah 5.2. The time of these prophecies had come. People asked John if he was the Messiah, and he said, No, no, I'm not, but he is here. And I will show him to you. As we heard about two weeks ago, Jesus was making those introductions. He was telling people, or Jesus, John the Baptist was making that introduction. He was telling the people that Jesus was coming. And when John was there, when Jesus was there, John John showed him to them. So what does it mean that the kingdom of God is near? Article by Peter Orr on crossway.org discusses this one verse in quite, quite a few paragraphs. Uh, it's a little dense, but if you're interested in uh, the past tense and present perfect tense of Greek verbs, I would recommend it. So here's a little bit of it. Uh, I trimmed out some of it, but um, it's still, I, I just love the language in here. So Jesus says that the kingdom of God is at hand, or had, has drawn near with the sense that the kingdom is on the cusp of dawning. Indeed, in some sense, it is already here. The tension between what has been called the now and the not yet of the kingdom runs through the New Testament and no less in Mark's Gospel. This ambiguity exists because for Mark and his readers, the kingdom is directly related to Jesus himself. The king is present, so the kingdom is near. It has drawn near spatially in Jesus' person, and also temporally, that is related to time, in the actions of God at that time to achieve eschatological salvation. The kingdom of God is near because it's a king, because its king has arrived, and because God is working in the world to bring salvation to us. Jesus repeats John's invitation to repent and adds an additional life-changing invitation to believe the good news. The good news is the entirety of the gospel, the truth that Jesus came to fulfill the Old Testament and die for our sins, giving us eternal life. If we accept this invitation, we have a new life right now and the promise of eternal life. In January of the year 2000, I attended the wedding of a childhood friend. I was home from college on break in my final year of school. My whole family was invited, so I rode to the church and reception with my parents. Also in ten- attendance as a bridesmaid was Catherine Holtus. Catherine had been Susan's college roommate, and her family was also invited. And in a triangular coincidence, Catherine's grandmother attended the same church as my parents. Not long into the reception, Catherine's grandmother took me by the hand and announced I had to meet her granddaughter. (laughs) She led me over to her, interrupting a conversation with one of the groomsmen. (laughs) Catherine and I talked and danced the night away all the way to the magical hour of 10 p.m. (laughs) when my parents were ready to leave. (laughs) I told Catherine I had to go, and she replied with an invitation. I can take you home i accepted we closed down the wedding we went to perkins and hudson and stayed out until 3 a.m the next day the mother of the bride called my mom slightly scandalized to let her know that Catherine and i had left together was that the moment our life changed it's a fun story even if it's not here i am 24 years later with four kids a cherished church home and a surprising number of people who were present that night also present today. <laughs> <laughs> Have you had a life-changing invitation? Perhaps a proposal, or a job offer, or perhaps the message of Jesus tugging at your heart? Let's look at the disciples. When you, receive Mark, when you read Mark 1.18, next to John 1.40, we see that there are two meetings between Simon Peter, Andrew, and Jesus, one during the ministry of John the Baptist and another later by the Sea of Galilee. In this first meeting, John the Baptist introduces Andrew to Jesus, call back to Pastor Danny, and Andrew gets Simon and brings him to Jesus. In today's verse, we see Jesus extends an invitation. Verse 18, As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come and follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. Nice wordplay, Jesus. At once, they left their nets and followed him. Jesus had left the area where John the Baptist's ministry was and returned to an area near his hometown. Jesus was traveling, preaching in synagogues, and healing people. He calls Simon and Andrew. At this point, they have at least met him once before. But they leave everything they have and join Jesus on his mission. Jesus will teach them, send them out together in pairs to preach the good news, and they will, bring, and they will be with him during his last days. Is this the moment their whole life changes? Seems like it is. They give up all they have to follow Jesus, and Jesus confirms this in Matthew 19:27 when Peter asks what their reward will be for them who gave up everything. What about Zebedee and the men on the boat? When Jesus had gone a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother on a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. So Jesus' invitation is different in each situation. We've got got at least three other people on the boat who are not invited. And for many of us, that might be our reality. We're going to answer Jesus' call without traveling to a new place, perhaps without giving up everything we have, but we still have the opportunity to follow him and to do everything that we can to show him to others and to uh, do his will in the world. So what do we do then? We have three invitations before us we can take a hold of every day. Repentance, to believe the good news, and to follow Jesus. Emotional intelligence might help us in the office or on an airplane. Certainly people respond better when they're traded with patience and empathy. But rather than embrace a new word for an old concept, let's accept these invitations. Jesus' teachings are humility, empathy, generosity and love towards one another. Being His disciple, that is, being his followers, will include the rewards of heaven and a changed life that we can enjoy right now. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we pray that and thank you that as you come to us wherever we are, and whatever our situation might be and whatever stage we are in accepting these three invitations that you would continue to reach out to us and make them known to us and help us to make them known to others. Amen.